0: Welcome to Subject to Power. I'm El Kamehira. Many who study this have stated, including guests on this show, that we're living in a sort of industrialized sexual exploitation era where women and girls, and I should add children and men to that, but mainly women and girls, are being fed into a global sex trade machine to satisfy what seems like a bottomless demand for both pornography and prostitution and every iteration in between. I think it's also fair to say that the industry, quote-unquote, has been very, very successful in normalizing sexual exploitation and, like Gail Dines calls it, pornifying our culture. And we can debate... The merits of sexual exploitation industries, whether it's empowering, like the sex work is work lobby will have us believe, or whether it has damaging effects. But I find the discourse around it lacking and kind of meaningless because we so rarely hear the voices of people who are actually in the sex trade or have been directly touched by it. We absolutely never hear from the men who purchase women for sexual use, but as of recently, more and more women who've successfully exited the sex trade are speaking out and telling their stories and joining the conversation. In this episode, I'm talking to Mia Doring, who just came out with a new book, Any Girl, a memoir of sexual exploitation and recovery about her experiences in the Dublin sex trade. And she sheds a lot of light on all of the above through her own story. Your new book, Any Girl, a memoir of sexual exploitation and recovery, I so, so appreciate the book. I think there's so much conversation around the sex trade, sexual exploitation, prostitution, that is had by a lot of people who know nothing about it. And I feel like the only way that we can really know what it is really like is to hear from people who have been touched by it in some way. And uh, so I really, really appreciate the courage that it took to to write it and put it out there in the world.
1: Thank you. <laughs>
0: it took a long time. It took like 10 years on and
1: off to get the right book written. I wrote a couple of different versions of it. Yeah. It took a while to be ready to to do it, yeah.
0: Yeah. What pushed you forward?
1: I think just having, there's a lovely quote, I think it's Maya Angelou, having an untold story inside you is the greatest agony or something like that. It was that sense of like, there's something wrong you know I have to tell the story I can't explain it any other way it just had to be told or I wasn't going to be all right <laughs> do you know what I mean yeah it was a sense of like a, more like a feeling like that I just had to do it when I was struggling with deciding to write it or not or whatever I'd be asking people all like do you think I should write this book and that I had all my reasons why it would be a good idea I was like okay well it'll help this that and the other and it'll do this and it'll say fuck you to the other side and whatever it'll be such a big fuck you to them. And then I was talking to my friend, Julie Bindle. She's a feminist campaigner and I love her. we were in Berlin and I was like, do you think I should write this book? And I thought she'd t- tell me, yeah, definitely. And here's all the reasons why it would be great. And she said, um, you have to write it for you first. And I was like, for fuck's sake, like <laughs> the last thing I want to hear like that. If I could be a martyr, that's great. Like, but if <laughs> you know what I mean if I'm like sacrificing myself then that's fine but if it's for me then it's real responsibility or something and then the the side effects are all the great things it'll do potentially because we don't know what what the book will do you know nobody does but it was a really good conversation I'll never forget it and then I kind of had to get my head around that and then I was like no it is the right thing for me to do for me and are you all right or are there really like to be honest with you like (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like the since the book came out I had this I suppose my imagination was telling me when the book comes out you'll be free and then you'll be free of the past this is all narrative in my head no evidence back it up whatsoever but just like this is what's going to happen you'll be free you won't be tethered down by the past anymore you'll be able to move in the world the way you want to move in the world. Like none of that's really happened. Do you know,
0: <laughs> It's yeah. just,
1: I, I do feel like it was the right thing to do. I suppose it's a bit like, oh, I really want to have a child and I'm going to have a child. And then you're like, oh, this is actually really hard work. You know what I mean? Like if there's lots of love and everything and I'm really happy and I don't regret it, but it's also super difficult. I imagine that might be what it's like where you're like, oh, okay. Yes. All these wonderful things are there. Cause you know, it is freeing and it is, great Um, and I am doing the work I want to do and whatnot
0: but it's also been quite challenging I suppose as well unintended consequences and yeah
1: yeah unintended consequences fall out that you don't expect that you're not but for you it's a common sense and for other people it's not whatever the thing is Mm -hmm. at all a lot of other people's kind of not shaming me but kind of like in their silence shaming me do you know what I mean not acknowledging what I did you know that's been very very hard people in my life and just the past doesn't go anywhere, you know, it just hangs around anyway. And that because of my expectation that it'll dissolve a good bit whenever it does show up, which is every day, like I was experiencing this like frustration, you know, and real like down on myself that I wasn't able to be free of it or whatever. But that's good. Get, that's getting a lot easier. I'm just like, all oh, right, right. That, that isn't what happens <laughs> when you write a book about something. It doesn't just go away then. The depression doesn't just go away because <laughs> you wrote a book, like, you know, that kind of thing.
0: So I thought when I started your book reading about how you got into it and your the unconscious conditioning that you received before you were even pulled into the sex trade, I thought, oh my gosh, that could have happened to me so easily. Because that period is so heady when you're discovering your sexuality, discovering men's attention, and you feel very invincible. I felt very invincible when I was like, really a young young girl. It wasn't like you were trapped into it by uh, nefarious characters. It was a gradual mm. seduction. I, I don't know how you yeah, define like, it yourself. Uh, yeah.
1: yeah, grooming. Yeah. Was grooming.
0: Groomed. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. By this older man who was 100% nefarious, but I did not really realize that. Like part of me did realize it. I, like, I knew it was shady. So like he got me on my phone. So I'd been raped, etc. That was all terrible. Then within that year, this man came into my life via my mobile phone and he was texting me a lot. And he basically groomed me for a year or something via text. But I knew it was shady from the very beginning. I wasn't there going, oh, my new boyfriend. Like, you know, I knew it was shady. I knew he was a dodgy person, but I didn't really care because I was getting all this attention that I needed and wanted. Like you said, you feel invincible, but also you feel like there's no risk to anything. Like, and when you're that young and your prefrontal cortex has not been developed through your long term reasoning and thinking about things is not really there. You're just kind of going with it. You're not thinking about like consequences or you're at risk to yourself or anything like that. And also because it was on my phone, I was just like, didn't it wasn't doing anything to me because it was my mobile phone. I was, it was just texting him and then, but he was very controlling and very like I text him by a certain time and all this kind of stuff. And he was into me being in school and having a school uniform, et cetera. That was his, one of his main things, was the fact I had a school uniform. I was 17, 16 when I first contacted him and then 17 when I met him. So the whole getting into the sex trade part was like, I met him in this house and whatever happened, I had this like school uniform and all this kind of stuff. He had a whole like organized kind of stuff that was going to happen. But anyway, when I was leaving, he gave me a hundred pounds which was loads of money for a 17 year old and it's still a load of money now. I wouldn't mind getting a hundred euro right now. I think I have about a hundred euro in my bank account. (laughs) We're a little over, (laughs) but yeah, there was lots of money. And that's how much he wanted to bribe me to come back. I just took it and went home and I was like, that's great. hundred quid for doing really nothing really, Uh, because he didn't have sex with me. So loads of things happened in that moment. One thing was like, it bribed me to come back because everything was unconscious here. Like, it just made me go, this is great. That was easy to get this. So it was a bribe to get me to come back. But it was also a silencer. So I could never tell anybody a man gave me money to hang out with them, obviously. Like, unconsciously, I knew that, you know, I wasn't thinking about it. But obviously, I wasn't going to be talking about it. And it made me complicit. So it made me be a colluder in the abuse that was happening because I took money for it. So there was a part of me that was complicit in my own abuse. That was all the things he was doing. And also it made tangible what I was worth to him. So my value, my sexuality having value was suddenly a hundred before then it was his attention. and then it became a hundred pounds. And I really wanted to feel valuable in that way and feel wanted and needed and important and all that kind of stuff. But like to think back because you blame yourself so much and you take so much responsibility, like way too much responsibility for these things it's only in recent years I thought like oh he had to go to the ATM to take out the money to give me he had it planned you know this wasn't just a random thought he had but only in recent years I was like oh that was a strategy because I was always like okay so the impact of the money was all these things on me and really thinking about how it affected me and what I did in response and blah 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 and I didn't really think too much about like it being a strategy for him of course that's how money got involved the very first time I met him And then every time I met him, I met him for about three years, on and off, like he was very sporadic in the background of my life. So it made it very kind of insidious as opposed to something very explicit, because if it was very explicit, I think I would have, if it was very, very explicit harm, I mean, it would have been too clear for me, which is what happened to me way later then when I got out of the sex trade. But it was very, not subtle, but he'd drop in and drop out, you know, the kind of way. And then he was taking photos of me and he had this whole setup with a tripod and a clicker thing so that he could be in the photo while taking it. He got the photos developed and he just was into humiliation and this kind of thing and telling me how I can never go into that pharmacy again because they know what I look like. And they've seen all these naked photos of me and stuff because his thing was like me being naked all the time or wearing this little stupid uniform. And he'd take photos of me, do things to me. And that went on for a few years. Then he sent me to this old man friend of his who I just went. I was just like, OK, whatever you want. I didn't know it was going to be an old man. I mean, this guy like white hair and he was super friendly and super chirpy and super like delighted that I was there. And it was like a real job. It was like, I have to go there for a certain amount of time. I'm going to get a certain amount of money. So, you know, it was like a job as opposed to this other guy where it wasn't a relationship, but it was different. So met him. He was very friendly, delighted, but also really, really violent. So it was a really terrible time there. I can't remember how long I spent there. It was ages. And it was awful. And In that experience, I think that's when things changed for me in a way where instead of like, oh, this is really bad, it was more like I can endure this, you know, unconsciously again, so much of this, so much of this is unconscious. Like consciously, I was like, I want the money. This is what I have to do to get the money, which Mm -hmm. makes me feel better about myself. But unconsciously, it was like other things were happening. Like that sense of like, I can endure this and I'm good at enduring this, all this kind of stuff. So my kind of self-worth was, spreading out just not just from getting the money but like yeah being able to endure and being able to be however the man wanted me to be this guy was super violent and I got out of there and I remember telling the man the original man like he was really rough and it wasn't okay and he hurt me and then Your man goes, sorry, your man is like Irish slang for like the man. Call him Jay in the book. He was like, oh, I'll talk to him for next time. And I was like, oh, my God, I don't want there to be a next time. Like I had no autonomy here. I would know, like, actually, I don't want to see him again. Like that didn't even come up for me. But he was taking photos of me and stuff. I I hated it. Like the worst part was when I could hear you feel whole set up like it was so weird the flash would go off or whatever and I just cringed. I just hated it but no part of me ever thought like I can say no to this because I was getting paid so I couldn't say no. It was like an unconscious thing again. It's like if you're getting paid to make someone a cup of coffee you're not just going to go I don't really feel like making coffee for you right now. Like yeah. you're not going to do that. It's your job to make the coffee. That's the point of paying, right? Anyway, eventually I got away from your, the guy Jay because he showed up at my house. I was getting older like I was 20, 21 and I was starting to cancel on loads and not show up and stuff like this because I was making new friends in college and I was having like a nice time and my self-worth was coming from other places, I suppose, from other relationships. So I didn't feel the need for his weird attention anymore, but I still wanted the money. So I I was still hooked in there because that was a real sense of power for me
0: mm-hmm.
1: to have the money. I didn't need the money. Like I was a broke student, like every other broke student, but like I didn't need the money. Like it was that sense of power. Like my sexuality has power. That's what I wanted. So then um, eventually he showed up to my house all angry one day because I had cancelled on him last minute, which is what I I didn't like him. Like I I didn't like him at all. And then I was losing respect for him. Like I wasn't afraid of him anymore. It was a better way of putting it. So he showed up at the house because he must have picked me up from there before some other time. And um, that was way too scary for me. That was really, really scary. He grabbed my wrist and was like giving out to me at my whole door. And my housemates were like, what is happening? So that was really frightening. And that was the end. I never saw him again. I moved to the like parallel street. Never saw him again, which was brilliant. But then so it was like a there was like a blurring going on because I can't really remember when the next part happened or how it happened. I really don't remember anything about it, which is really strange, but I can't remember. I knew I still wanted this money to feel like power, like I had power. I had all this other trauma that had happened and I wanted to be in charge of my body, which I found very difficult with normal relationships, I suppose. I found it very difficult not to go into that kind of real dissociated outside my body, whatever you want, I'll be kind of thing. So like I was meeting nice people and going out with nice people and stuff, some of them anyway, but that was always running my low self work. Like, so I got that sense of power and I'm in charge from Getting paid, right? Which is so upside down, but that's just how it was. So then I ended up in prostitution and I don't, I did no, like I said, I have no memory of putting an ad online. Like I would have had to put an ad online. I don't know how I did that. I don't know how I researched that. Like we didn't have the internet in the house at that stage. I didn't even have a laptop until I was in fourth year for writing my thesis on like mad. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I do not know. I do not remember. I don't remember the first punter, but I know that that's when I got involved. I was twenty twenty one. I remember where I was living. So, yeah, I was about 20. And I don't remember it Yeah. I don't remember any of the first boundaries. Like, I just remember nothing. It's so weird. But that's how I ended up in prostitution. It was all unconscious. Consciously, I was like, I fancy money. But unconsciously, was all this other stuff.
0: Yeah, that you're now having to deal with in some way.
1: Yeah, over the years, you know, yeah.
0: You also say you talk about how no woman needs to advertise that men find vulnerable women.
1: Yeah, I think, well, now I think things are way more scary with uh, things like Instagram and Snapchat and Twitter even and OnlyFans and all this kind of stuff where men can find vulnerable women who are might be very obviously vulnerable, Do you know, because predatory men don't hang around too long. Like they work the same way as any abusive man in any abusive relationship where they'll seek out vulnerability. If they don't get it fast enough, they'll just discard that woman or girl and go and find someone else. So like it's really easy now or it might be a lot easier. I don't know, I'm speculating a good bit here for them to find vulnerable women who kind of present as vulnerable online without even knowing they're. So that's scary. Men will hang around outside. We've got these awful places called direct provision centres in Ireland for refugees where they're kind of housed while they're waiting asylum and they're just grim places and whole families are shoved together in one room. It's just awful. But predatory men will drive around outside the direct provision centers and offer women money because they're aware these women are only getting like 20 quid a week or 30 quid a week from the government to like live. So they'll drive around and offer money or offer a man who's staying there to be the middleman. They'll say to him, we'll do a deal and you go get the women. So basically be a pimp for me to procure the women from inside. So this happens. But also like even back in the day when I was involved, I before I was even involved, I lived near Red Lights District and men would cruise up and down and look at you and say things like the window tea and stuff like that. And I'd just be walking home from work or whatever, you know. Everywhere. There's so many of them.
0: <laughs> it's not like you have to look hard to find them. They'll find no. you. They'll find you. One of the things that strikes me when you were talking about the guy that groomed you is that how it was such an enormous difference of power between you being so young and him being an adult and that you didn't perceive that or like, that's kind of what we miss as girls.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You don't. Looking back now, like I'm 40, nearly into it. And like, as I was getting into my 30s, the mid 30s, and while I was writing this book, I was 35. I think I wrote it in the book as well, that I look at teenage girls around where I live and teenage boys around where I live. And I'm like, they're so young. And I couldn't imagine as a 35 year old, because this guy was around, he was in his 30s anyway. I couldn't imagine. And these are boys who are like 17, 18 in the shop getting their sandwiches at lunchtime or whatever. I couldn't imagine wanting anything from them. Do you know, in that way, like it just goes—it's just completely disgusting and alien to me, no matter how old they look. Do you know that kind of way. But you're not aware when you're a teenager. I don't think you're aware at all of your own vulnerability at all, and you're also not aware of your power either. So, when something does happen, which it does, there's like no awareness. Well, for me anyway, there was no awareness that I could do something about it. So when I got groped on the train. Did nothing about it. I got sexually assaulted in my car when I was about 17, 18. Didn't do anything about it. Didn't even tell anybody. And that was really awful. And it's that thing that you just have to also expect and suck it up. Adult male attention from passing cars or passing comments or whatever it is, even when you're wearing your school uniform. And um, That's just how it is. And then we've got this schoolgirl fetish, costume, yeah.
0: madness. Yeah.
1: Like mad. Yeah, I don't think we're, we're aware when we're teenagers, teenage girls of our vulnerability or of our power.
0: I wanted to talk about when people who don't, who haven't actually been in the sex trade or, or have experienced it directly, talk about it. It's a lot about the violence and the risk. But in this day and age of sex work is work, I think the unwantedness the unwanted sex, the fact that it's unwanted is very unattended to. And you do write about that a lot. And I just wanted to get your, how you think about that.
1: Yeah, I think um, people are willfully thick about this and willfully ignorant about it. I don't think it's like people don't understand. I think if people thought about it for two seconds or tried it out themselves, they'd understand this in seconds. So like, I don't really buy it that we're like, oh, people don't understand. I'm like, well... Think about it for a second and you will. Like, it's not that difficult a concept. If you're paying somebody to have sex with you, then it can't be mutual sexual concerns. And then people compare it to one night stands and stuff. And I'm like, OK, but when you have a one night stand, you're attracted to the person, right? You want to have sex with them. Yeah, they're a stranger that you just met, but you're attracted to them. There's desire, you're turned on, you're in the mood to have sex. There's a mutuality present. When you're paying someone to have sex, there's no mutuality present. So therefore, there is no consent. And then people are like, but it's like a job. Nobody wants to go to work. I'm like, but you're not having sex as part of your job. So stop comparing selling a car to having sex. Do you have to have sex with the man who's buying the car? No. Then it's not comparable. Like, I hate it. Either sex has innate value or it doesn't have innate value. Either sex is a product or it's not a product. We don't get to have it. Well, in this context, it is a product. We don't get to take away the physiology of it, the impact of it, the nervous system response to unwanted sex. Then we downgrade rape into just somebody punching the arm. Do you know what I mean? If if sex has no inherent value and in, inherent anything, why is it traumatic then to go to uh, get your first smear then? Why is that difficult for people, for girls, if it's just a body part? Like, yeah. do you know, I hate it uh, and it makes zero sense. And then we talk about the sex trade being violent or being dangerous and how we need to decriminalize the whole entire sex trade because that will somehow magically, magically on some other planet, make prostitution safe. But what they're saying is not making prostitution safe. It's the men are the unsafe thing. So I'm like, okay, fine, let's compare jobs. Right. I work as a psychotherapist. I work in a very small little room. Two people in a room, me and some men. Would you believe I, I have three male clients at night? Right. Because night times are the time people want to go to therapy. Usually I'm locking up in my own building. Other therapists have left on a Tuesday night and I've never once been worried. I've never once been scared. I don't have a panic button. I don't have a speed dial for the police on my phone. I don't have to worry, do any of that. And what's the difference? It's a cash business. They could rob me if they want. Well, it's not cash anymore, sadly for me, but used to be a um, COVID <laughs> game. Um, but um, yeah, they, uh, I have cash on me and um, hundreds, you know, nobody's tried to rob me. Nobody's tried to beat me up. Nobody's tried to rape me. No male client has tried to do anything apart from do psychotherapy with me. What's the difference? It's the clientele. It's the men. It's the men. Why are they raping and... Pulling hair and smacking and not using condoms and all that kind of stuff. It's because they're paying to have sex with you the way they want to have sex. That's the point. But you can't compare if you're working as a secretary and part of that is having sex with whoever. Then, then yeah, we then we'll talk about comparing. But like, until that happens, you can't compare. A job. You can't compare sex and making a fucking coffee. Like, sorry, it's paid, so it's not wanted, so the body receives it as unwanted sex, whether or not you're saying to yourself, this is grand, it'll be over in an hour. This is the things I say to myself, I need the money. It's worth it for like 500 quid or whatever I was doing. My connection to my body was so non-existent that I could have done anything really and felt unaffected by it. But obviously I was being deeply traumatized the whole time. So that's the thing. If we go by what our minds are saying, well, this is fine. I know these guys are not going to hurt me, you know, whatever it is. But the unwanted sex is the harmful thing. That's why, we, that's why it's a type of rape and that's why we can't legitimize it. Do you know, because it leads to all this trauma. We've got all this evidence that prostitution is really, really harmful to women involved in it. Really, really staggeringly terrible leads to all sorts of awful outcomes for them. Ripple on effect on their families, whatever. We all know this, right? We all know this. I, I hate having to explain. This is why it's harmful. All we
0: have to do is think about it for a second. Would I like to do
1: it? No, why not? There's your answer why it's harmful.
0: Yeah, you even compare... Bad sex with paid sex. Can you try to articulate the difference between bad sex and paid sex, and why one there's is no tri- money and yeah.
1: there's no money in just bad sex. So yeah. it's just unfortunate. It's consensual. It's mutual. It just didn't. Wasn't really that great. And maybe you turned out to be a bit of a prick, you know, whatever. But you're not getting paid, so you have autonomy. You have agency. You have uh, the freedom to choose. You don't have freedom to choose when you're getting paid. You don't. You just don't. You don't. Like, you can't say no. I mean, you can say, you can wheedle and be like, oh, you know, if you're having sex with somebody that you're a bit afraid of, and you're kind of like, hmm, I'm having sex with this person now, and I'd really like to get out of this. And you're not going to go, here, listen. Like, if I'm having sex with somebody that I trust and, you know, whatever, I'll be like, here, listen, I'm not in the mood. Done, right? Easy. But with somebody that I'm a bit like, I don't know how he might respond, then I'll be like, oh, you know, like, what about just whatever? Let's take it easy for a sec or whatever. I'll wheedle them and be very nice and kind and, So I don't annoy them. Right. That's how it is in prostitution. where you're like, oh, please, you know, why don't you put on a condom? Because then you'll have a lovely time and I won't keep nagging you to put on a condom. (laughs) Ha ha ha. Like trying to make jokes and stuff or whatever I'm trying to do or holding my own hair so we can't pull my hair out. You know, stuff like this, like and being like, oh, I'll just grab it. You know, (laughs) like all these ways where you're like trying to appease them, placate them, all this kind of stuff so they don't harm you. The nervous system has experienced that as disconnection because you have to disconnect to have that kind of sex. So it's traumatic, whether you like it or not. Like you can say, I'm not traumatized. I like what I do, blah, blah, blah. I don't care. Your your nervous system is getting traumatized. You don't know it is.
0: That's right. And you talk about decriminalization. The immediate issue I see is that if you are violated, you can't take it to the police. It cuts off that avenue, doesn't it? I mean, if you're in a place where prostitution is criminal, you have a certain layer of protection.
1: Yeah, you have a kind of a double sort of thing because they're already, the punter's already doing a crime, committing a crime. Right, right. So you have that already in place to then be like, and also this happened. And the woman is in Nordic model countries, the woman is decriminalized, so she's not doing anything illegal. Um, which means she's safe and the police are working very hard here to um, have good relationships with women in prostitution so that they do feel able to come and report to them, etc. cetera.
0: Right. But if you decriminalize it altogether?
1: Yeah, it, you'd be a lot less likely to go to the police and um, decriminalization decriminalizes the entire sex trade. So it normalizes it, it legitimizes it, and then it therefore grows it, expands it. So if you're a trafficker, that's your like absolute Mecca is like a country where there's decriminalization because nobody's involved in anything there. And um, why would you need support services to help women in a country where sex workers work? Why would you need counseling services for women if sex workers work? If it's just a job, why do you need just to leave the job? I won't need support services when I leave being a psychotherapist. But You don't need counseling or any sort of services to help you survive, outside. like that's why it's not a legitimate job, <laughs> right? And it's not a legitimate hobby for the men. Um, but yeah, that's why we uh, decriminalisation is a disaster. Aside from all the legality things, either as a society we're saying yeah, it's okay to sexually objectify women, woman; it's okay for men to do that, or we're saying no, it's not. Like we don't again, we don't get to go. Well, in some cases it is. No, either it is or it's not. Either it's a value that we hold or it's not a value. Like we don't get to shift and change the goalposts. In all these kind of cognitive gymnastics language, alphabet soup bullshit, you know, where you're like, what did you even just say to me? Like when they're trying to argue
0: things. You you talk about trauma in a, in a couple of different ways. One, that prostitution itself or being in the sex trade is reenactment of trauma. How do you look at yeah, it? Yeah,
1: like so one thing that happens with trauma is that, just for an example, if you're raised in a chaotic environment... As a child, you're going to be more drawn to chaotic environments, chaotic people, as an adult in the world, because that's what you're used to, right? It makes sense, right? The neural pathways are laid down for that behavior that feels familiar. We like familiarity, even if it's really terrible familiarity, we prefer that. It feels safer than doing something different because the nervous system is going, oh no, that's new and different. That's scary. Let's not do that. It doesn't understand until we've done it a few times, laid down those neural pathways a few times. Oh, actually, this is safe for us. If we're not aware of anything, which most of us aren't, we're not, cognizant of all this kind of stuff we just kind of do what feels right you know or what feels good or what feels safe and a traumatized nervous system is always looking for safety which is awful and ironic because women who've been um, sexually violated are way more likely to be violated repeatedly exactly because of this and this isn't victim blaming at all but it means that like you're more drawn it's like a woman Who's drawn from abusive partner to abusive partner to abusive partner. It's the same process of reenacting. So it's like unconsciously, there's a part of us that's like, if I can tell this story or own this story my own way, I'll get a different ending. So we do similar behavior or are drawn to similar things in an attempt to create a new ending, but we'll never kind of create the new ending. You're just
0: getting more and more harmed.
1: It's trying to be in charge of the story. But like we're we're just getting harmed again. We don't know we are though. We don't know that's what's happening. I certainly didn't know. I thought it was a great idea what I was doing because I was getting all this money and I got to feel in control and powerful, in control of my my body. But of course I wasn't. But I didn't. I didn't really know that. Yeah. That's sort of what reenacting trauma is. Not a very good explanation.
0: I I think it's a great explanation, actually. And the other way you talk about trauma is that how. Or the trauma you experienced from being in the sex trade is that, I don't know, I just found it very moving that you come out feeling disconnected, that it disconnects you from existence itself. Can you try to articulate that?
1: Yeah, like trauma. If I know we throw the word trauma into, I mean, anything new, but anything bad happening or any unpleasant day or whatever it is. I like had a very traumatic day and uh, whatever. It's so annoying. But <laughs> but. Trauma, if we think of it in real terms, it's profound disconnection, internal disconnection. So it could be the traumatic in effect of a car accident or whatever. But coming into like relational trauma, that's like a profound disconnection inside ourselves in order to survive. So, for example, again, if we're raised by an alcoholic mother or father or something like that, we have to dissociate. We have to split. We have to disconnect inside ourselves in order to survive that relationship. because. For a child, their mother's love, just just to go with mom here, it's life or death for a small child. It's literally life or death. It's like if mom doesn't love me, I die. So again, they're not thinking it. It's an unconscious piece. If my mother doesn't love me, I'm going to die because I need her love in order to live, to survive. So I need her to love me. If mom isn't giving me unconditional flowing love or if it's unpredictable or scary or chaotic or very conditional on how I am, I can't be genuine. I can't be myself. I can't express my feelings or my needs or my wants or anything like that, because it all depends on whether I'm pleasing her or making her comfortable or making her okay. So I have to disconnect. So the same thing happens in any relational trauma where you have to disconnect in order to survive the thing that's going on. Because if I was with the punter and I was connected to what was happening, I'd absolutely freak out. Like I'd freak out. I'd start screaming and crying and like running around and like. Getting away from it, I'd suddenly be incredibly, incredibly terrified. So there was a part of me, that survival part, that was like, you can't do that. You you can't. It's too risky. You can't do that. So I had to split and numb out. And then the aftermath is like kind of a chronic dissociation where you're just kind of like chronically, that sense of not really belonging or feeling like another or not really connected to the world. That kind of chronically stays with you. So that you're like now, not in the sex trade now for a million years, but like it still stays with me, the sense of like, I'm not like other people. I don't really belong. and I still get all dissociated and stuff like that where I'm not really sure what's going on or I'm not able to think straight? It's really hard to explain dissociation, but it basically means where you're not really inside yourself anymore. You're kind of shut down. It's like that being in the body is too... Because again, if you're in the body, you'd feel all the feelings that were appropriate for this violation that was going on. And there was that protective survival part of like, you can't feel those feelings because it's too dangerous for you to feel those feelings. You just got to make sure he's all right and that he leaves. Then the problem is if you don't have after traumatic event happens, if you don't have an empathetic witness, I don't know if you've ever been mugged or something like that happens and you where something scary happens or some big argument happens and you want to tell the story over and over and you're kind of telling anyone who listen to you what happened. Right. That's your nervous system, discharging the trauma. Right. So anyone who will listen to you and who is a safe person, who's not going to judge you. And that's that instinctive drive to heal is by having an empathetic witness going, God, that sounds awful. That must have been so scary. Whatever. And that's how we heal. But in prostitution, obviously, so much secrecy and shame around it. I wasn't going to tell anybody that something happened to me right after. Obviously, I wasn't going to do that anyway. So that just kind of compounds that disconnection, dissociation. So these two versions of me nearly grew where I was like going to college, being normal, having normal relationships, normal friendships, all the kind of stuff. And this other very traumatized part of me was doing the reenacting of the trauma. And then it was too dangerous and I wasn't able to connect. It's like women who've been raped and they freeze. You know, it's th- yeah. it's the same thing playing out there as well. It's not safe for me to move or fight back or whatever it is. So I'm going to freeze.
0: Freeze or flop. I know there's a new term
1: now. Flop is good, fawn as well. They're both parts of freeze. So you've got fight, flight, freeze are three. And then part of freeze are flop and flop. The collapse end. A lot of people have heard of fight, flight or freeze. So you've got the activated part of the nervous system, which is like fight or flight, where you're moving and you're action, this stuff happening. So you're able to take action in that way. Then there's you drop down the ladder of the nervous system, let's say down more towards a freeze. Like total catatonic, there's a term playing possum, you know, possums yeah. and they just kind of flop there and pretend to be dead. And then the predator doesn't want them because it goes, well, I don't I don't want a dead animal because that's not safe for me. So it's not going to eat it. And then they just kind of get up and get on with their life. Um, but that's what flop does. So a lot of people in trauma, like you get you get attacked and then you realize you get shot or stabbed or whatever. And you don't feel any pain at all. The body just shuts down. The more I suppose a threat to life the event is, the more you're going to go into freeze. So when I got raped, for example, I was like super flop, super. Super freeze. Just wait, wait and endure. Freeze and endure. Wait till it's over. That's the safest thing for me to do here, because freeze is the closest to death. So when you feel like your life isn't under threat, which rape is, most people respond out of the freeze place. And fawn is like trying to please the predator, trying to go along with their plan or be part of it in some way, because it's like a kid who goes along with being bullied. That's fawning. You know, you're trying to make it be okay for yourself because realizing what's really happening that you're being targeted by bullies or that you're in a lot of distress or that you're being raped, whatever, is too much to acknowledge. So if you're like, oh, yeah, this is fine. I actually did really want of have sex. And you kind of fawn along with them. That makes it feel that you're like part of it in some way.
0: I wanted to get to the men. You talk a lot about the myths and truths of what men get out of buying prostitutes and what they don't. So I just wanted to kind of get into your thoughts on that.
1: Like generally speaking, who knows, right? For a these men aren't talking about anything, they're not coming together in organizations or groups or whatever, or little circles of meaningful connection with each other to discuss what they're getting out of this. They're just doing it and they're in the shadows, as usual. There's over 100,000 of them here in Ireland, and one in 15 men regularly pay for sex here. But I think generally speaking, they get out of it a sense of parent control, and that's it. Because if they weren't paying for sex, they can get their lonely stuff sorted in other ways they can make friends for example that's a way of sorting out your loneliness if they want to have sex with a woman they could work on their skills to attract a woman they don't have to pay for it you know we have all these like really irritating defenses of men like what about disabled men like what about just well okay first of all I don't care if they're disabled or not that's really got nothing to do with it but secondly what about disabled women what are they doing what about women who haven't had sex in two years like I've been one of those women I've Somehow resisted, not that there's any in existence, hiring a man to have sex with me. Somehow managed not to go looking for that online, even though I wanted a sex with me dance, for example. It's the money, the paying for it is the parent control thing. So if I pay you, then you have to be how I want you to be. And that gets them off. And then they write their reviews online afterwards, which gets them off a little bit more to say like five stars for value for money or whatever it is. Um, mm. Or four stars or three stars for physical appearance because you know she wasn't as pretty as she was in the photos or she's a bit older fatter than it looks in the photos all this kind of absolute bullshit yeah it's parent control I think is the main thing and then their excuses are I'm lonely I don't have sex with my wife my wife won't have sex with me I'm like why can't you have an affair because that's not the deal they really want if they really wanted to have sex with the woman who wasn't their wife they could potentially do that that's not the deal they want they want to own the woman for half an hour an hour and they would not put it like that at all. And a lot of them are hilarious men. I enjoyed hanging out with a lot of them. But they're all rapists and they're all doing this and they're all looking for parent control. They want to have anal sex with you and they're not going to get it from their wife. They're going to pay some 23-year-old Romanian girl with no English to have anal sex. Parent control. Like I've said a thousand times now, if it wasn't that, they could go and make, you know, have a relationship with some woman who is into that. But they don't want to bother doing that when they can just force a woman to do it. Because it is forcing.
0: You call punters predators. They're all predators. They all know what they're doing. You don't buy that they are the loneliness or that there are other like needs-based things. Sure. That's not what's going on. Sure,
1: they have needs, but they have we all have choices. We have our needs, sure. And then we can make choices to meet those needs. The choices are the problem, not the needs. Do you know? The choices are the problem. You can have helpful or harmful choices. Your needs are grand. We all need things. These men need whatever. Let's say for, oh, for God's sakes. Go on Tinder. Like, I don't know. But like, why are you? But that requires
0: something from them. That
1: would require something from them. Exactly. And they don't want that. They're lazy and entitled and selfish. And they just want it all for themselves. They just want the woman to have to suck it up and absorb his shit. Because that's what you're doing. If you're not looking at yourself and working on you and going, what can I bring to this? This interaction with this human being that I'm going to be intimately connected with you're putting all that into the woman and that's what prostitution is. It's like men paying women to absorb their shit and their trauma and their pain and their inadequacy and their crap and their selfishness and their everything. So it's not just like traumatizing because of the disconnection and the sexual trauma, but it's also traumatizing because you have to compromise so much of yourself just to get through the half an hour of the hour. You've got to smile when you really don't like the person because they're not just paying an entrance fee to your body. They're paying you to be friendly and smiley and make them feel good in all the various ways, you know. So that's why it's like a soul kind of killer.
0: Yeah, you say that they know they're dealing with a traumatized person. And so what is that?
1: Well, they're just rapists, like... (laughs) They go into these apartments and they're like, she wasn't really up for it. She Maybe she was sore or tender or maybe she just didn't want me to have sex with her. Like, this is a direct quote from Abundi. Then he wrote a negative review about that woman online. Like, they know. Do you know what I mean? I saw this quote online. There's this girl called Sienna who I follow on Twitter and she's a sex trade survivor and she writes really beautifully about her experiences. She was like a high-end, you know, escort. i put it on in inverted commas because obviously there's no such thing. Like a call girl, like what I did. And... She said, there's beautiful people on both sides of the exchange.
0: Mm.
1: And I thought that was such a generous and beautiful thing to say, because when I was writing the book, I found it very difficult to like, on one hand, be like, these are ordinary men that we all know. They're our neighbors. They're our friends. They're our priests. They're whatever. right? And then also say, and they're all rapists. Do you know? Some of them are really funny. Some of them are kind. Some of them would give me a lift home. Do you know? Whatever it was. And they were rapists, you know, and they know what they're doing and they know they shouldn't be doing it because in this whole world of sex positivity, like why are the men who pay for sex not part of this beautiful sex positive movement? This like pro porn, pro OnlyFans or whatever. Why? Why are they still in the shadows? Because they're ashamed of what they're doing because they know it's wrong. <laughs> That's why they know what they're doing is wrong. Otherwise they'd be out and about talking about it. Do you know what I mean? Because they get absolutely mocked when they do come out. Rightly so. They get shame. rightly so, rightly so. But I did find that difficult in the book to write about, like, my compassion for all human beings doesn't end. Compassion from a large distance, but like compassion just because it's a human being. I hold as a person of value regardless, regardless, which is actually quite difficult to say, but it's true. And my compassion for that person doesn't mean it recognizes their suffering without letting them off the hook. And I think sometimes when you speak about having compassion, people interpret that as like, oh, poor things, hurt people, hurt people, bullshit, let them off the hook kind of thing. I'm like, no, compassion is fierce. And it's going, I see you, I see your pain, and I see your choices around that pain, and I'm saying no. And I think that's compassion is telling the truth. So that's what I was trying to convey in the book, but it was was pretty tricky because part of me wanted to go, they're all rapists, fuck them all. And then another part of me was like, and also they're human beings, and you've got to somehow describe the nuance of that without letting them off the hook. But at the end of the day, most women in prostitution are not like me. They're not like middle class college-educated white women, Irish. They're not, in Ireland anyway, they're not like that. They're mostly the vast amount, of 99% of them or something like that. Over 90% are migrant women from Eastern European countries, mostly Romania and Moldova who don't have English or have very little English or Brazil is another country they're from, but most of the prostitution is run by gangs. So the men who came to me, like I said, I'm a tiny little minority in prostitution, or I was. Most of the time, the men are going to some horrible little apartment. They're giving money to some man. The man knocks on the door and the time is up. The girl doesn't want to look at him. The girl doesn't want to talk to him. The girl can't speak English. The girl can only say sex related terms like condom or no extra or whatever horrible terms she's learned to say. She won't make eye contact with him. She'll fake it with her hand. This is another review. He was like she was faking it with her hand. And I finally copped on like, and that doesn't make you realize you're raping a woman like bananas. But that's what pain does for them. It wipes away their conscience and it makes it turns it into a product that they didn't get the product they were promised, right? Or she had English on the phone. Suddenly she had no English when I met her because it was a different fucking woman or it wasn't the same woman in the photos. Yeah, because it's trafficking ring that you're dealing with right now. Like, obviously it is. Obviously. But instead of going, oh, I'll ring the police, they write the review on their phone afterwards of their disgust. their two stars for the experience instead of like actually giving a shit about the women. That's what payment does. They're like, well, whatever. That's her problem. I paid her. Do you know? They pay not to care. They pay so they don't have to care. Exactly. Because that would take something of them. And what they don't want to do is have to give anything up themselves. They just want to dump it all in the woman. But it has to be a good enough thing to dump it into. Do you know that kind of way? She has to be smiley and friendly and happy. Otherwise, that's not good enough. Doesn't make him feel good because they're, they're so inadequate. They feel so inadequate. They feel so shame filled. They have to have a good mirror. So narcissistic people have to have like narcissistic supply is the term, which is weird, but that's the term where you have to be mirrored back in a positive way by everybody around you. If not, then you'll get narcissistic rage will come at you. And like we instinctively know that when we encounter these kind of people and nowhere is it higher, I doubt, very much than in prostitution. They're narcissists, sociopaths, psychopaths. They're shame-filled people. Like, otherwise they wouldn't be doing it, right? They wouldn't be doing it if they weren't.
0: You talk a little bit about the men who scare you. You talk about men who don't scare you and that you get along with and can have an okay time with. And then you talk about the men that scare you. What's the difference?
1: Well, I guess the men who are friendly and chatty and like weren't dickheads to me. I mean, this is not to say I excuse their behavior of paying for sex or that I wasn't harmed by that. I absolutely was all unwanted sex is unwanted sex. But there's obviously a spectrum of how you experience that. Some of the men were one in particular, this regular guy was super just a really nice guy, like he was a carpenter and he'd (laughs) he'd be on jobs and he'd pick me up from wherever I was in town or in, in college or whatever. So he didn't scare me. I kind of knew he wasn't going to hurt me outside of what he was paying me to do. So there was a couple of them, like I only had a couple of regulars, so they were the best ones because you could relax right around them. You didn't have to hold everything tight and be braced for anything to happen because these are total strangers. You have no idea what they're going to do. You haven't had like in a one night stand, maybe a couple of hours of drinking with them or hanging around them or even half an hour, you know, where you're like you get your nervous system. So the body knows things the mind doesn't and the nervous system receives the other person's nervous system and is like, feels connected to them or feels like they're safe or whatever. And then we feel safer in their company. It's like if we're around someone who's real frazzled or highly anxious, we're going to feel really highly anxious as well. It's got nothing to do with the mind. It's the nervous system responding, right? So with him, I could relax because I knew in Inherently, instinctively, I mean, he was not going to hurt me. And there was a couple of them. But most of the time, there was fear running through the half an hour or the hour, no matter what, because this was a total stranger and you you had to be tensed for the unknown, I suppose. You had to be kind of always watching, always ready, always assessing. Right. That's the word you're always assessing. Am I OK? Am I safe? What's he going to do now? What he you want? You're trying to preempt his needs the whole time. So it's a very draining half or half an hour or an hour. And you're giving an awful lot of yourself. Also, the comparison of the job thing is interesting because you'd earn more for an hour of prostitution than you would for an hour of therapy. But I went to college for four years for therapy. Like, why is it 250 an hour? You don't need any qualifications to be involved in prostitution. and But that's what I'm talking about. The cost is massive and therefore the price is high, right? Yeah, so you'd always be a bit afraid, basically. You'd be a good chunk of right Man, in fairness. It's not a bit afraid. You'd be a lot afraid the whole time. And then there was some men, there was a couple that were super afraid of. There was one guy who just, this is going to sound like nothing, but he just looked me dead in the eyes. And he had black eyes. And you know when you hear people saying his eyes turned black? I know what people are talking about after witnessing that guy. His eyes were black. He had to be a psychopath. like, And he was looking at me, looking through me, looking into me. It was horrifying. And he didn't say a single word to me. Not a single word. He didn't say hello. He came in, he sat down, he was just sat there. He took off his belt or whatever, got himself all ready. But he didn't. he didn't speak to me once. It was so incredibly disconcerting. And like I was saying about nervous systems, his vibe was like ice. It was so terrifying. And I remember being like, I have to be very careful here and I've got to be like, just really make sure he's okay, and that, he, you know, be however he wants me to be um, so that I'm safe because I knew he could kill me. You know that sense? I was like, he could kill me like it's within his wheelhouse. (laughs) Do you know that kind of way? I got that like very strong, very direct unspoken message you're in a lot of danger but luckily nothing happened and it was just normal but it was frightening and if you're not at ease having sex like we're doing whatever it is you have to do that is so damaging that is so incredibly traumatic it's so harmful to the body and to the mind and again it's the nervous system which carries everything you know it's the nervous system that informs our feelings our thoughts it's sometimes we think we have to change my thinking and my mindset no you don't you got to meet your nervous system where it's at, and then your feelings and your thoughts will change on their own. They follow the nervous system around, not the other way around. Um, but we think our minds lead everything, but it, do, it doesn't at all. But again, I wasn't aware. I was just like, phew, well, that guy's gone. I wasn't like, I wasn't sitting around thinking, now I'm now deeply traumatized with that experience. You know, we're not aware. We don't, we just experience disconnection. And then we're like, why am I so depressed all the time? Why do I want to drink all the time? Why do I want to take drugs all the time? Why am I having sex with all these random people all the time? And we're kind of like, that's a thing I do. That's weird. We don't understand what's going on for us because it's all so unconscious. But this other guy was super violent. He was the last guy, super violent. He was like in his 30s. I was like 24, was the very last punter I saw. And I went in and he, again, didn't speak to me, super cold. I was just a piece of machine, machinery or like a piece of furniture he was going to use. He was watching TV. He didn't even turn around. The doors, he'd opened the door of his apartment. I went in, all very dark. He was watching American football for some reason on TV and like didn't even turn around to say hello. So I just kind of stood there in the door, kind of going hello. And then he comes over and he was like, do you've changed? And I was like, no, obviously not. Then he was annoyed that he had to give me more. And I was like, well, OK. And um, it was just awful. But that, what they want from you is like, oh, it's lovely to see you. And like blah, blah, blah. But in fairness, actually, these psychopathic, sociopathic ones, I don't think they give, they give a shit whether you're happy or not. they Or whether you're smiling at them or not. I don't think they really care. You know, the narcissists, which is most of them, they just want to wallow in this sense of power and control and being adored or being looked at or being smiled at or being like said yes to a million times for whatever they want. But I I don't think the psychopaths and the sociopaths, and it all sounds very dramatic, they're everywhere, these people. I don't think they'd really give a shit. You know, they're the men that can rape women, they're the men that do whatever. Like, they don't, I don't think they care whether you're smiling at them or being friendly or not, they're just like, just do what, what I want you to do. But he got really violent and he hit me and he had my hair and it was really scary and I and he was trying to rape me and super physically like painful. And I got out of there and then I was in my car and I was like, oh my God, my body was like in such pain that I just thought, you know what, I actually, like it was like my body finally was like, I can't date. I can't, this is too much for me to bear. Because I'd be hurt before, like things like smacking or hair pulling or just sex would be painful or whatever. But it was kind of dealable with, do you know what I mean? It was tolerable. But this wasn't tolerable because I was in such a heap in the car outside. And my, my body was the thing that was like, here, this is our breaking point now. And I'm giving you very direct messages that this has to stop. Because the other messages I've been giving you have not been enough, clearly, because I'd be feeling sick before seeing a pointer, anxious, like nauseous, like shaky, like all this kind of stuff. But I wasn't I was so disconnected from my body. I didn't even, wouldn't even notice that that was really happening, you know, or mm. I'd be like, oh, I wonder why I feel sick. You know, that's weird. You know, I must have been something right. like I would not be connecting at all. My head and my body were in two very different places in order to survive, which is weird because then people victim blame me all the time. They're like, but you chose it. I'm like, yeah, I'm explaining to you why I chose it. <laughs> But they still will be like, yeah, but you chose it. You got your money. So what's the problem? I'm like, yeah. So I'm just explaining to you how that happened. Ho- I don't even bother anymore. If people, are, if people are willfully like, but you chose it and you got paid and you made your money. You know, I'm like, there's no, there's literally no point in explaining to you. Absolute ignoramus, like what actually happened. But that was it then. I was I'm done then. I was like, all right, that's it. It was too scary. It was too scary that night. So it was really my body after that. Because if this was worse, somebody would have to know what happened to me. Even if it's Amy, somebody would have to know. Some doctor would have to know what happened to me and how it happened. Mm. And then other people in my life would also have to know. Because I was really mm. young, I was 24. And yeah. it, was just, it was just an instinctive thing of like, no, this is bringing these two worlds way too close together. Like I'm not invincible, actually, you know. And I am one whole human. I'm not various versions of myself spread around the city doing this.
0: How did you put yourself back together or
1: well I actually moved to Berlin and my sister lives there and it's a real second home for me anyway but I moved there and I met this boy and within a couple of months like I wouldn't have said we were in love or anything but it was it was a really good normal relationship with somebody who had very little experience very little sexual experience it was just really wholesome you know and that's what I really needed and the wholesomeness still breaks my heart whenever I experience kind of something that's real wholesome and real like I didn't even know how to explain something very beautiful, wholesome, pure. You know, my heart really breaks in those experiences. And I find it very sad. Like, it's weird, but I do. Like, it's really sad. But I really want to do wholesome things all the time. But then I find it really hard as well at the same time. But anyway, it's so complex. Met him anyway, and he was the first person I told. Because I was getting gradually more and more angry. And I was seeing things. I was out of Dublin. I wasn't in the streets. I wasn't in the those neural pathways right there. So I was... Or, you know, the, the pathways to Dublin weren't there, you know, so the familiarity wasn't there. Sorry for referencing your pathways every three seconds. But, um, <laughs> but then it is what it is. Oh, it's the real, it is what we're dealing with. <laughs> yeah. You know, it sounds mad, but it is. It is really what's going on. And then I kind of had a bit of a breakdown when I was back here. Without going into the big, long story, it was like the Berlin thing was the best thing because I had distance and I was able to see and I realized I was angry. I was really angry all the time. And I realized I'm angry at the punters. I was angry because of what they did to me. That was like a major revelation to me. And then I came home and started writing a blog and writing is really, not really blew up. It was really frightening. It was called Secret Diary of a Dublin Call Girl and I've deleted it now, but it was, it was a huge thing. There was articles and newspapers written about it and oh my God, the media trying to get involved in everything. And it was really intense. People trying to find out who I was. The punchers obviously hated me and mm-hmm. were trying to find out who I was and there was threats all over the, around the place and. My name was being leaked online and just awful things. Really scary, really scary. Now I, I could give a fuck now, you know, obviously. But back then it was a very scary time and I was much younger and nobody knew in my life, you know. So really writing and then slowly telling some friends and stuff. And then I, there's this organization here called Rahama that helped me out a bit with a caseworker. And it was just good having somebody who got it. And then I got involved in changing the law. And that was a really great place for me to dump all my trauma. All that traumatic energy into like, and I will now save the day single handedly. <laughs> <laughs> so that happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then we got the law changed and that was very emotional. And um, that was six years ago, ten, seventeen. And then since then, I felt very weird. And then I found a new therapist in 2018 because I was really lost and really like, well, I don't know what my purpose is anymore and I don't know what my, what my work is anymore. We got the law changed. Now what do I do? Um, and I'd know where to put my stuff, you know? Um, but again, hilarious. I didn't realize it was trauma, I was driving all this. I just thought, I need to figure
0: out what I'm doing in my life.
1: <laughs> and then I was writing, always writing. And then the book, yeah.
0: It sounds like writing is like super instrumental to your healing.
1: Yeah, I think so. Because it's like, there's no, I'm not really into self help or like advice or anything, but I am into truth telling and telling our stories because I think that's all you need to do is be like, this is what happened to me blah, blah, I felt about it, blah, blah, that's all you need to do. And then the person could be like, oh yeah, I connect with that bit. Or that part resonates with me or that's really moved me in some way. And there's no need for any. We have all the answers inside us. We just need to listen to ourselves. And that's the crux of things, because abusers want you disconnected. They don't want you trusting yourself, close to yourself, believing yourself. You know, they don't want that. And trauma disconnects and abusers want you disconnected. And like I in the book, like traumatized women are the best Women for these men to use, because dissociated women, sorry, are the best because they're women that will not complain. They will not say no, and they'll just endure whatever it is the man wants them to endure. And that's what you get in in prostitution. It's like a trauma queel. I don't know how else to describe it. Trauma machine, trauma machine. It's a trauma machine. Yeah, yeah, it's traumatized people. This is not me saying hurt people, hurt people, but it's traumatized people because how can you be so harmful to another person if you're not expurging your own crap at them? They're shame filled and they're narcissistic. So they have a deep wound that they're dumping on women, I guess. I don't really know, but like I'm guessing. But like I also have a traumatic deep wound and I'm not trauma dumping it on people, do you know, so that's what I mean about the needs and the, res- the choices. Like we all have our needs. How do we meet those needs is what matters. Or do we meet them in a moral way <laughs> or do we meet them in a really immoral way?
0: And women are not doing the incredibly harmful things to men that men are doing to women. Exactly,
1: exactly. So like as much as I accept and acknowledge, yeah, sure, they carry deep wounds. But like all human beings carry deep wounds, you know, all of us carry deep wounds. So what what about the other men? So there's one in 15 men here, pay for sex. So the 14 other men, like are they just magically not harmed? Are they just magically not traumatized? Like what's the difference between the men who pay for sex and the men who don't? You know, I'd love to read a study on that. Julie Bentle did a piece of research in, I don't know, years ago. Interviewing like over a hundred men, and that's available online. That's an interesting one of the things they say. It kind of comes down to parent control and and like sexual entitlement, eroticized entitlement.
0: I think prostitution, sex trade, pornography, all of it is lowering the quality of life for all women. It has a global effect, and we don't pay it enough attention to that. So we want to separate things. We want to put the bad women prostitutes or sex traders over here and then the rest of womanhood sort of in a different compartment. I think we overlook a great deal the overall. The impact it has on all women and all girls and all boys. Yeah. But
1: one thing I've been thinking about recently is how confusing things are for boys growing up. We're saying to them, oh, you have to get consent and consent is very important in sex and We're using the word consent, which is also annoying because it's like about getting consent, giving consent. It's about, it just means to comply. You know, it doesn't really mean anything really. Sure, I'll have sex with you for 100 euro. Like, that's me. I'm giving my consent. Yeah. So you got my consent. You're not raping me. But you are raping me because it's not mutual. I I just really, really, really have problems with the word consent because it's too simplistic for something that's quite nuanced, you know. But mutuality, the word mutuality, uh, desire, you know, that. Brings it home to what actually consent, sexual consent, actually is. It's not compliance. It's not just saying yes or no. It's about mutuality. But I think it's confusing for boys because all this talk about consent and, you know, not objectifying women and talking about porn being, well, in Ireland, the conversation is very slowly getting around to talking to kids. Again, it's really in the early stages of like porn isn't healthy, but they still say things like porn is a fantasy. It's not real. And they're going, oh my God, it is real. These women are being harmed. Like, That's the problem. That is the problem and the problem that they're getting paid for it. But we're at the baby steps of like how to talk to kids about it. And I'm not a kid person, so fair enough. I don't know what I'm talking about. But like telling kids porn isn't real. You can't expect that from girls. Blah, blah, blah. But and then we're saying OnlyFans is fine and sex work is work. And if you want to be in porn, you do you, you know. Mm -hmm. And then you got these Boys commenting on girls' pictures on Instagram, what's your OnlyFans? Like, it's normal. Or in group mm. chats, like, it's normal. It's normal. I can't tell you how normal it is. So on one hand, we're going, oh, porn's bad, objectifying women's bad, cat calling's bad, you got to get consent, make sure you don't harass a woman, don't follow her up a road, cross the road if you see a woman in front of you, don't scare her. But OnlyFans is fine. Jerking off to, like, women getting brutalized is fine as long as you realize it's not real, which it is. Right. It's so confusing. It must be so confusing to be a 17 year old boy or
0: a 16 year old boy or even younger now. It feels like, I think you say this in your book too, the water we swim in, you know.
1: Yeah, it's everywhere. Violence against women. It's so normalized, male violence against women, that we don't even see it when it's right there. You know what I mean? And it's so normalized and it's so the water we're in that exactly like you said, when something unpalatable is there, like sex trade or whatever, because it's men doing stuff. Or rape or whatever it is. We're like, well, that's, you know, that kind of woman. Or Mia's an extreme case. Her story's extreme. It's not extreme. It's pretty average getting groomed into prostitution. Like We just don't hear about it. So we think it's extreme. You know, Or yeah, that's the type of person she is. Or if she was asking for it in various ways or whatever way we blame the victim. So we don't have to see the water we're all kind of drowning in. Yeah. Do you know? That's my yeah. take on it anyway. It's like it's a swamp and we're just like, oh, the swamp is fine. This is our home. <laughs> and then if someone goes, this is a swamp, it's like, oh, no, you're, you're the problem. Get out of the swamp. Do you know, <laughs> like, instead of just like, yeah, we're in a swamp, what are we going to do about it? We don't want to see it. That We're all human beings in a swamp together. Of course, we're all going to survive in various ways, being in the swamp. And I know I wreck people's heads, the amount I talk about prostitution and Whatever. I know it's annoying for people to hear over and over again. But like, I, <laughs> I
0: I really appreciate it because I think it's the only way we'll have an honest conversation about what's going on.
1: Exactly. And to be brave. It takes courage. And like it's brave to have these conversations, it takes bravery to actually look at the swamp and go, this is a really frightening place we really. Actually, we're not safe here. We're not safe because we want to be like, oh, I'm safe. I'm not that kind of woman. I would never get groomed. My children would never get groomed. (laughs) How do you know? You know, like we don't want to see actually it's really scary and bad here. So it takes courage to see things clearly. That's why I dedicated my book to the Truth Tellers, because it's like as a kind of a thank you to people that are acknowledging this is just what the reality is. It's okay. we can say it. (laughs)
0: Let's say it. Let's say more of it. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you so very much for this interview. I really, really appreciate it and enjoyed talking to you a lot.
1: Thank you so much, Al. Thank you so much for talking
0: to me. After my interview with Mia, I'm reflecting on the notion of victimhood. I think we have a problem with the idea of victimhood. Like to name your victimization, naming yourself as a victim, especially as a woman, because we're supposed to be so empowered. Collectively, I think we hate victims. We don't respect them. Only weak, helpless people who feel sorry for themselves are victims. We want everyone to be a survivor. But I think if we can't name true victimization we hide the perpetration, we invisibilize ongoing abuse and harm, and we stick the victim with shame that does not belong to her. In order to be a survivor, you must live through victimhood. And I believe we need to give women especially the right to claim victimhood without shame. Thank you for listening to Subject to Power. You can find the show online at subjecttopower.com or subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcasts. I'd love to know your thoughts on these conversations, so please drop a note on the website or find us on social media. The best way to support the show is to rate and review Subject to Power on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. Subject to Power is written, hosted, and produced by me, El Kamihira. Audio engineering is done by Jason Sheesley at Abridged Audio. Cover art by B. Johnson, and music by Beware of Darkness.